Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions in critical times. Here's your host, Bill Kelly. And welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. Good to have you with us today. Critical discussions for our critical times. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Uh, and we are looking, of course, at the geopolitical situation. And, and as we've talked about on podcasts previous to this one, uh, you can't look at what's going on in isolation, uh, whether it's happening over in Gaza, whether it's happening in Ukraine. Uh, it's tied to, to not just geopolitics, but to North American politics as well, uh, as evidenced by the fact that uh, when we look at Ukraine and Canada's position, and especially the United States position toward that, uh, bills, funding bills that are tied up in there that are, that are supposed to uh, be helping with the commitments that prime ministers and presidents made towards Ukraine uh, don't seem to be flowing with the, to the degree that we'd like to see them happen. So our next guest is going to comment on that. And of course, as you say, we're going to talk a little bit about the U.S. situation too, uh, since so much of what's going on with Trump and what's going on with uh, the Congress and the Senate down there uh, are very much tied to what's happening. Uh, Please welcome back to our podcast, uh, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Elliot, great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, good to be here with you, Bill. Let's, let's focus a little bit on U.S. politics and what's going on there, and then we'll we'll kind of, uh, if we could, uh, pivot over to what's going on in Ukraine, because there are developments as late as about half an hour ago uh, when it comes to funding. First and foremost, of course, is as we've talked about, uh, this is a presidential election coming up in just a few months, of course, November of this month, and uh, time flies, I guess, when you're in court all the time. Uh, it was not a good week legally for Donald Trump, uh, and let's talk a little bit about that element of it, and also... You know, notwithstanding the fact that he's still facing 91 charges, the stranglehold that he seems to have on the Republican Party in the United States. Yes, I'm not sure which aspect of this you want to focus on, but right now we are in a situation where I think I'm going to be controversial but a bit on this. Donald Trump's actually sitting pretty. Uh, he's had major setbacks. Uh, the decision that as former president, he is not immune we have a, a brand new uh, phrase to add to all of this conversation. He is now citizen Trump, mm. not former president, because the three court, uh, uh, three judge panel has ruled that he is not immune, as he claimed, uh, as his lawyers claimed, from prosecution, saying that that would make a mockery out of the separation of powers if he's not held accountable by anything. He could order anything anytime, and that's not the American way. So he lost on that. But it's going to be immediately appealed, and that's going to end up with the Supreme Court pretty quickly. But the reason I'm saying, suggesting he's sitting pretty despite loss after loss is two things. One, all of these court cases, he's kicking down the road. Uh, you pointed out that we're talking about November. The campaign is already underway. The nominating processes are underway. He will become the nominated uh, candidate to be the Republican nominee for president. And we're all wondering who will be his vice president. <laughs> and that's another subject altogether. Mm -hmm. But uh, he is apparently in position to just keep delaying and delaying and delaying. And if he does that, then we're in a situation where he could uh, run for election, get elected to the office, then have a <laughs> appoint his own <laughs> Justice Department head who will dismiss the charges against him. And once in office, assuming he gets there, he will then be immune also from the state-level charges. So all 91 of those goes away. And he's in position now to help make that happen because he's got a Supreme Court um, that is moving to the next big case, uh, likely. 
very likely, and I've been very amused to follow this, <laughs> to say, yes, he's constitutionally able to run for president, despite the 14th Amendment and the third clause under it. Uh, I've been suggesting since this came months ago to the fore as a genuine issue that uh, the Constitution will not forbid him from being on the ballot. What we had is a situation months ago, very quickly to summarize on this, two uh, important conservative judges, uh, not judges, but uh, lawyers, the founder and, and current head of the Federalist Society, the one that provided him all those names to be appointed mm -hmm. to the Supreme Court, came out and said, he can't be on the ballot. He's guilty of insurrection. And under clause Article 3 of, <laughs> of that amendment, 14th Amendment, he is ineligible. That was followed immediately by a, a well-known conservative jurist uh, and a well-known liberal uh, Harvard professor got together and said, yes, we've taken a look at the Federalist Society. Yes, uh, he's not eligible. And the Colorado uh, court has now ruled, yes, uh, he's not eligible. This, and I think Maine as well. So now it's gone up to the Supreme Court. My amusement on this, Bill, is the Supreme Court says, uh, is, is packed basically with people who say, we are originalist. You have to go by the letter of the law. And I've always thought that those conservative judges were actually <laughs> radical activist judges trying to use originalism as a way to roll back the clock, basically the pre-New um, pre Deal days, essentially. Watching them wiggle and squirm and say, no, I know that's what the Constitution says, but not, we're not, that, it doesn't apply in this case. It's always been very clear that, to me anyway, the Supreme Court was not going to disbar Donald Trump from running, for, for getting on the ballot, despite the transparent, uh, the transparent evidence in front of us and the court, uh, the court decision in Colorado. So uh, that being the case, what happens to all these others? Uh, that's why I'm, I'm saying he's pretty well sitting pretty. All of these other cases are, for one reason or another, postponable, delayable, and something ineffable uh, that does not get any attention is he seems to have luck on his side. A meeting, a judges, a, a panel of judges are, I'm sorry, a panel of jurists are about to meet. No, they get COVID, so they have to postpone it. And there's been a whole series of these lucky breaks for Donald Trump. So I don't look to the courts to be the effective way in any way to prevent him from becoming uh, the nominee of the party and very possibly the next president. And and you're right. I mean, I, I you know you hate to simply put this down to just plain luck, uh, or, you know, beneficial circumstances, but it's not the way he skated around some of these things so far. It clearly doesn't seem to be uh, because of any wizardry on behalf of his his lawyers either. Uh, they seem to be dropping the ball time and time again. There's no Clarence Darrow moment here at all. But again, these circumstances just seem to to favor Trump time and time again. As we're doing this podcast uh, today. Uh, we're awaiting the Supreme Court decision about whether or not uh, he's eligible on the uh, the ballot, of course, in Colorado and Maine. And uh, just from what we heard so far uh, from the the hearings that were actually uh, published, that televised, uh, that's not going to happen. I mean, they're going to no. tell him that he can run. I mean, and no, and uh, my understanding, Elliot, and I wanted to get your read on this too, is is the Biden administration and the Democratic Party in general didn't even want to see this go to court. It's a it's a, a t as far as they're concerned. 
It's it's just something that's getting in the way. It's not really something that that, that they wanted to fight on. You're not going to beat Donald Trump by by getting him off the ballot because a lot of other states are going to do this. And some observers are suggesting right now that if that were to happen, there'd be some pushback when people say, well, that's not fair. You know, we should be able to decide who we want to run for president. So it's just a bad, bad situation. And I think the Democrats would love this to get settled today. Said, okay, fine. We knew that was going to happen. Now let's move on with these other charges, if they can. Yes, and that's that's why I started out with the big, big picture. Yeah, that I did. I I see him, Donald Trump, is sitting pretty. I didn't see the Supreme Court. This Supreme Court, full of originalists who have to stick to the letter of the Constitution, they were never going to do that. One way or another, I think they'll find a way. We could all be shocked, you know, that decision isn't quite released, but I'm, I'm sure he'll be on the ballot and uh, this court will back him up in that. What about, let's talk about the the, the court itself. Uh, as you mentioned, there's a conservative, small C conservative uh, majority on this court. Uh, three of the uh, the judges, of course, have been appointed by Trump. Uh, yes. One of them rather, well, I was going to say all three are controversial, really, when you get down to it. Uh, you know, the, the Democrats are still wishing, you know, that that uh, at least one, you know, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, passed away a couple of years ago, uh, that process would have been opened up. Uh, Mitch McConnell wouldn't allow it. Uh, simply saying, well, it's an election year. You can't do that. Well, of course, when there was another opening, they put Amy Coney Barrett in there. We just what was a, a weeks before the election. Yeah, there, there was already voting going on at that yeah. point. So uh, and then <laughs> the current <laughs> Merrick Garland. Fortunately for the fortunately for the Republicans is actually a um, true believer in the law. If he was out for vengeance, he's now in position to have done so. But no, he's he's goes by the book. He's a he's a very he would have been on that court, uh, and that didn't happen because of Mitch McConnell. The justice, Supreme Court justice, of course, uh, John Roberts. Uh, suggesting that, because uh, there's been some discussion, you and I have talked about favoritism on the courts or in the courts and situations. We certainly know that the, the judge in Florida who's handling the, the Mar-a-Lago case is a, a Trump appointee who has made no bones about the fact that, that she's a, an admirer of the, of the president, and that seems to be skewing uh, what she should be doing there. Uh, Roberts, uh, Justice Roberts says that there are no Republican judges and no Democratic judges. There are American judges. And we weigh those facts uh, no matter what your political affiliation. Uh, an awful lot of Americans aren't buying that these days, Elliot. What's your thought on that? Well, again, taking a half step back, what this suggests is that yet another pillar of the American democracy is now tainted, uh, is now called into question. Another element that has sustained the American democracy for all these years has now been drawn into the very systematic, by Donald Trump's uh, own action, systematic demeaning and weakening of various aspects of the American political system. The Supreme Court was the one that was supposed to finally be the one that stand above all this. And the lower courts, the courts have always had a high regard. But the actions of, uh, of these uh, conservatives have really drawn that into question. And when you find the questionable financial situations around them, uh, particularly uh, uh, Thomas, but also Alito, and even the Chief Justice, his wife made $12.3 million in a court-related situation. So the court itself is now caught up in this. And that's one reason why I think the next few rulings are going to be scrupulously um, put out in the most formal, unquestionable, constitutionally sound fashion to actually support Donald Trump. Unfortunately, we saw that uh, the the 
overturning of Roe v. Wade has been a central feature of contemporary American politics. It turns out, uh, and, and it was rather predictable, it was, this, was, this was a long, long campaign to get the right judges in place, appointed by the right president, supported by the Federalist Society who gave him the name to do this particular action. It's now, of course, starting to boomerang on the, on the Republicans politically. They thought it was just the greatest victory possible, but Democrats are mobilizing on this issue, and it probably did stop the big red wave in the midterm elections, which was supposed to sweep so many Republicans to power. They almost lost the House, and this was a key issue. The Democrats will be leaning heavily on, look what that Supreme Court, that Supreme Court did. Uh, we, you need Democrats now in power. And that'll be a big part of the campaign going forward. But talk about, you know, with, with the Republicans that, as you say, have a majority on the Supreme Court right now, uh, a rather tenuous hold on Congress. Uh, and, and of course, the Senate uh, is is uh, very tenuous. Just, we're talking about the matter of just a couple of seats here. Why the stagnation then? I mean, you know, they, they've already been dubbed by just about everybody in America as the do-nothing Congress. Uh, they're not passing any meaningful legislation on any side of this. And then, of course, came the funding bills. Let's tie that into our discussion here. Uh, there was supposed to be funding for Ukraine. Uh, there was supposed to be funding for Israel. Uh, and there was, uh, of course, the, the Republicans decided to tie this into funding for uh, increased security at the Mexican border. Uh, they threatened to to hold up everything, and it actually did for one point until Chuck Schumer kind of did an end run around that. And, and there's going to be money going towards uh, Ukraine as a result of this, and I, I assume to Israel too, without any uh, money for borders in situations like this. But it just seems as if the, the mantra for the Republican Party at this stage, Elliot, is it's not what's best for America. It's not what's best for security. It's not what's best for global politics. It's what's best for Donald Trump. And we're just going to play, you know, we're going to play defense and we're going to block anything and everything just because Trump says, well, that's what he wants us to do. Well, a couple quick comments. The first is off to the side in a way. Uh, the phrase do nothing Congress was used by Harry Truman. And yeah. I've yeah. always seen uh, the current President Biden really as a, essentially that's been, he's been compared to this president and that president. I think Joe Biden is really a New Deal Democrat as represented by Harry Truman who ran against, successfully ran against the do-nothing Congress. We do have a do-nothing Congress right now. Uh, the country is polarized, and it's been most sharply demonstrated when laboriously an agreement was reached, as you just pointed out, tying together, which is not at all in a logical sequence, the whole question of providing uh, aid, for, uh, was aid to Ukraine and also Israel, but also Taiwan. Uh, and that suddenly got all wrapped up into a package. We're not going to do that unless you tack on something totally non-connected mm -hmm. to that. And that's the uh, uh, money to do something about the border. That agreement was reached in a bipartisan fashion in the Senate. Then Donald Trump said, I don't want it. I want immigration and open borders to be the center of my campaign. So you cannot give that issue. You can't take that issue away. And also you can't give a win to Joe Biden. And therefore you have to kill this. And even in the Senate, even in the Senate, unlike the House, which is not nearly as um, ideologic, ideological or, or normally as paralyzed, even there, they wouldn't even allow it to come to a vote. The deal that they themselves had worked on, and they said, well, we're not going to vote on it because the House leader has said it'll be done on arrival. They didn't say because Donald Trump wants to keep it alive. 
Now, what is happening, and you alluded to it, and it's very important, but it's not a done deal, is the Democrats, the the, the Speaker of the, the House Speaker, Mr. Schumer, has said, you don't want to tie these together? You want to keep immigration uh, alive? We'll just take it out of the bill. It shouldn't have been there in the first place. We now will bring forward the same funding bill we wanted you to vote on before, but this time we'll take out the immigration issue. It's not clear that he and he got a big vote on that, uh, but it's not at all clear it'll pass in the House. We'll have to see. But uh, and 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 since we're on that subject, I want to emphasize something very important about mm-hmm. it. This is funding. The, the bill was funding. You've heard about it, but 60, uh, 60 billion of that was for Ukraine. There's 14 for Israel and I think five for Taiwan or something. This was a Ukraine sustainability bill. If you, if the president can draw, has drawdown authority. He's used it all up. He needs new authority from Congress to spend more dollars. And um, you, we are in an existential crisis for Ukraine right now. If this bill doesn't go through, Ukraine is in serious difficulty. Mr. Putin is smiling. And uh, we'll do all he can, I'm sure, in his, men, in his way to help bring Donald Trump to power, his friend in the party. Uh, Ukraine, there's money in the pipeline. Ukraine can be sustained for a while. The EU put forward, hey, $60 billion in support, the same amount. But uh, without some way of getting this money through the U.S. Congress, Ukraine and the Ukrainian war is at stake. And we will have a world. We will have a world where Mr. Putin will have eliminated the sovereignty that eliminated Ukraine, will be a nuclear armed power in the heart of Europe, patiently taking apart NATO and EU unity, which he himself strengthened by his invasion. And then we are into a total, uh, totally different geopolitical situation. That's how dire this is. And that's the consequences of the bill we're now talking about. But why and how did we get to where we are right now? Here we are in 2024, and and you've got, well, certainly Trump uh, in, in his own bizarre way, but even House uh, Republicans and, and Senate Republicans, for that matter, uh, almost singing the praises of Vladimir Putin. And then you've got the, the whack job Tucker Carlson over there who's going to interview him and I guess put that on his webpage or something like that. Uh, but he's a good guy. You know, that he's uh, Tucker Carlson, who some suggest is just a mouthpiece for Trump anyway, says that he's he's cheering for Putin against Ukraine. Uh, they're the bad guys, Elliot. We've always known that since the Cold War. The Russians are the bad guys, you know, spreading communism. We will bury you and on and on and on. Uh, and now all of a sudden you've got this 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 part of the Republican Party, which is basically saying, no, he's our guy. Uh, and not necessarily Trump fans. I mean, you know, as I say, not everybody is a Trump fan, even within the Republican Party, but they seem to be leaning more towards the Soviet Union or to Russia. Well, it may be the Soviet Union if Putin gets his way when all is said and done. Why all of a sudden has this change occurred? And why do people seem to be gravitating toward it? You see these people now with their American flags on the back of their pickups and they've got their you know, T-shirts, you know, I love America, et cetera. But, but they're embracing Vladimir Putin. It's a very profound question and a lot of ink has been spilled on this. Uh, the short and quick answer is, is that Donald Trump... Uh, has benefited from many, many years of the Republican Party's uh, political positions, building up, building up basically isolationism, building up protection of America first, building up a sense that we are under threat, we meaning 
basically uh, white Republicans of a certain age yeah. and certain yeah. certain religions. Uh, we are under threat. Uh, only Republicans can stand up to for, for that. But they were also small government, strong on defense party up until recently. But what happened is Donald Trump came in and tapped what the Republicans had been developing and 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 others like Geist issues and became the leader of the party. And the party is essentially now uh, entirely in, in the thrall of somebody who does not see the world you just articulated. Uh, he sees the world quite differently, uh, basically through his own prism and what's good for him. Uh, he likes strong men. We know that. He he said he and Kim Jong-un fell in love. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, there's all these rumors Mr. Putin has something on him, and that's why he behaves that way. And he, in turn, uh, turns around to his followers and says, you gotta, you have to follow me on this. Uh, the base of the Republican Party, which controls the electoral machinery of all those elected Republicans, is under the thrall of Donald Trump, who is unmoored from the traditional Republican concerns even, and certainly unmoored from the geopolitics of a of a world where a country like Canada can thrive. We are not idle bystanders in this. If the world goes the way that Mr. Putin wants, backstopped by China, and then we also have the situation where China is emerging, we are in a substantially different world. The fate of Ukraine, which seems kind of far away, and you know, there's a lot of money being spent. Let me talk about the money a bit. 90% of the money that America allocates for Ukraine in terms of weapons gets spent in the United States to kind of invigorate the American industry. Yeah, and A lot of those are in deep red states. And they're saying, no, we don't want that money coming in to, to sustain our own domestic industry. So it's, it's a very bizarre situation. I don't have a complete answer to it, except that basically uh, a unique personality has reaped the benefit of decades of Republican uh, positioning, and uh, he he holds that party in absolute thrall. Well, it kind of reminds me of the old, uh, you know, uh, this is my opinion. Now, don't confuse me with the facts. Uh, you know, I've, I don't want to hear that because it, it doesn't jive with what I want to believe or, or what I've been told I have to believe in situations like that. Uh, and you're right. I mean, we can't look at this in isolation. I mean, we've got to want to be prime minister on this side of the border, too. Uh, that says Ukraine's this little country far, far away on the other side of the world. Why why should we be paying attention to them? And on and on it goes. And again, kind of parroting, uh, and we've seen the editorial cartoons from Deatter and, and some of the other great uh, you know, satirists in this country, basically saying that now Polyev is, is the little puppet on Putin's knee uh, advocating for him. And again, there's an audience for it, Elliot. Did you ever think that we'd see that in this country? Well, I won't comment on the domestic politics of it, except in this one fashion that it's been quite clear that Canada as a whole is not friendly terrain to MAGAism, to Trumpism. And the we are not an island. You, <laughs> there's no giant barrier between Canada and the US in terms of the airwaves in particular. Mm -hmm. What happens there washes over onto us. And we're seeing this, those, and now it'll wash into domestic uh, issues. This is up to the two parties. I will point out that Certain stronghold provinces have strong Ukrainian-Canadian presence, and uh, that will be very interesting and tricky politics uh, for anybody to na navigate <laughs> as, as we go forward. But uh, this is, um, uh, if Mr. 
I think Mr. Polyev has pivoted. I thought he had pivoted. I'll comment to this degree on domestic politics. Away from, basically, I will introduce uh, mega politics into Canada. He, I thought he dropped that pretty decisively. That He needed to unite the right. Mm-hmm. Because, remember, there's, there's the People's Party out there. He needs to unite the right to become prime minister. Uh, and as to do that, you take away the thunder of the potential splitting of the right. Having consolidated that, he can become prime minister. But since a lot of the country doesn't welcome that type of politics, I just um, it'll be interesting to watch how he moves on that forward. And remember, he's leading now by double digits almost in the polls. Mm-hmm. And, and and again, as you say, it's it's having an impact globally on everything that's going on. Uh, yes, it's it's kind of like you know we're, a lot of us are sitting here looking, and I've been around. So have you, if we, when we've seen uh, a lot of change over here, I mean, I remember the Cold War. I mean, I remember as a little kid growing up in Hamilton, getting scared out of my wits when I heard the air raid right. sirens going on. Right, you know, it's, you it's only a test. It's only a test. Yeah, well. Uh, yeah, but the steel mills are right there, and apparently that's one of the first targets. You know, so that kept me up a lot, and other people too. And we got away from that. And then there was Gorbachev, and there was detente for a while. Uh, now we seem to be we're we're trending backwards right now to to one of these situations where you know the world seems to be in such an upheaval. And I guess we're looking for a hero, political or otherwise, who can just say, "Whoa, enough of this stuff." I don't know that there's one on the horizon. Um, and, and and I guess that's what troubles people an awful lot more. It's not just the circumstance that we're in right now is we don't see a way out. And we don't see somebody who's going to say, follow me. I, I can, I, I got this. No, nobody that we seem comfortable with anyway. But the Republican base did find somebody. Yeah. And people who were not in the Republican base at all found somebody. I will be your voice. Uh, the, 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 we have to remind ourselves there's two kinds of populism. There's populism of the left, which uh, we see in Latin America to some degree, but there's populism of the right, which is now uh, sweeping Europe to some degree. Um, Wilders now is the largest. Uh, he got the most votes in, in his country. So populism of the right is a phenomenon. There's globalization. Everybody was in favor of it among the elites. A lot of people said it doesn't work for us. It's costing us our jobs. We shipped all of those jobs to, to China. And sure, we're getting cheap goods in the stores, but we've lost our jobs. America's industrial heartland was hollowed out. So the, the global economic forces are certainly at play. I think my own view is 2008 was a big watershed. The global all-but depression uh, that occurred at that point is still having ripple effects. Uh, so there's... There's many, many strands to this, but the the big picture here is that populism, I will be that leader. Follow me. I'll be in Latin America. We have uh, in El Salvador, very interesting new character on the scene. He's just been elected for a second term. The whole idea of I give me your faith, give me all the power, I will look after you. It's very, very alluring, but that's, that's what you're asking for as a demagogue. Uh, yeah, and God knows there seems to be no shortage of them around these days, too, if you look around the world. Uh, you know, we've got Netanyahu hanging on to power in Israel right now, and uh, and even the people that are pro-Israeli right now, I would like to see that guy step aside. And then you've got Trump uh, with what's going on here. Polyev is, is uh, I think, trying to etch into that. I don't know if he's going to be successful or not. But I guess the, the thing that frustrates me, though, as I look at this, uh, Elliot, is the people that are following that, they're following the ideology. Uh, and you know, I mean, 
let's face it, when, when communism began to flourish in, in the then Soviet Union, you and I both know that wasn't communism. That's not what Lenin wrote about. Yeah. Uh, it, it was They put a label on it, uh, but it wasn't communism. I mean, you know, but Putin is not one of these, hey, let's all share everything and everybody's on the same level. He's a multi-billionaire, and, and so are his oligarch friends. And it's the same thing with other forms of government. We, we buy into the ideology, but we don't open our eyes. Uh, and 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 understand that. Look at that guy's just sh shooting us the line here, right? Because we don't we want to believe it, and we don't want to hear anything that's going to shatter that 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 faith that we've developed in in that particular individual. Well, we started a conversation talking about an American institution, the court. Yeah, the resilience of our institutions, which we have evolved over a couple hundred years, and you know more than that and around the world in terms of democratic governance, self-governance, not being ruled by, by uh, some leader who has power over us and we yield to that power. But no, uh, leaders don't get to pick their followers. Followers are supposed to pick their leaders. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's democracy. So the resilience of our, of our institutions, and if I may say so, what we teach, civics, is very, very important and whether whether we're going to get out of this cycle or into a, a spiraling darker cycle. I don't want to end on a, on a deep, dark, pessimistic note. Uh, when we talked about domestic politics, the leader of the opposition started talking about bread and butter issues, and that's when he went up in the polls. Mm -hmm. What what are we going to do about housing? What are we going to do about... So when you speak about the issues that matter to people, sometimes, sometimes... That carries over the ideological, uh, the ide ideological baggage and alternatives. The Republicans have mastered this in the United States. You know, uh, you know comfort the rich and afflict the poor, and mobilize culture wars for the base. When you put up culture culture wars versus, you know, I'll, I'll help to make your life easier and better. We'll disagree politically on how to do that. One party says this, and one party says that, but ultimately. I want to make your lives better. We want to have a better society, a more caring society where everybody feels part of the community. Uh, and we see that in Canada. Anytime there's any kind of disaster of any kind, flood, fire, people just rush to help th their neighbors. And when the U.S. got in trouble over 9-11, you know, <laughs> planes landed in Canada and were welcomed yeah, here. Yeah. So the, um, I guess this is a complicated way of saying I, I, I'm not – in despair, but I'm very concerned about the direction we see in global politics. Exactly. Uh, not again. I, I share your concern. I don't want to finish this on a negative note, but uh, again, on the other hand, uh, you don't want to go whistling past the graveyard. I mean, there are some issues that we need to be addressed, and and you know, my my feeling has always been that we have far too many public officials right now uh, that tell those people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear, and and. There's a world of difference there. Anyway, we will pick this up at a later date. Uh, nothing is, is static here. There's a very fluid situation just about everywhere. Elliot, it's always great to have you on the, the podcast to talk about this. Thanks so much for this today. Very welcome. It's always, always good to chat about things with you, Bill. You betcha. Take care. That's uh, Professor Elliot Tepper, uh, of course, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Carleton University. And that's it for the podcast this time around. You can catch us, of course, spread the word about this. Uh, you can catch us on podcasts wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Until next time, I'm Bill Kelly. Take care. Bill Kelly Podcast brought to you by Wizens Law, personal injury lawyers. Listen, you didn't choose to get injured, but you can choose the right lawyer. Wizens Law, 905-522-1102 or wizenslaw.com.